everyone, and this is Tagore from the Uncultured Company, and welcome to my podcast, A Pint of Imbecile Wisdom, and this is season two, and today I'm very fortunate to be talking to a woman, a mother, uh, a qualified musician, and a pianist par excellence, and I say that because I've had the pleasure to have heard uh, various pieces of her, of her music. Uh, which is collaborated with a common friend of ours, and we'll come to that in a bit as well. But Melanie, a girl from the South who's been living in New York for a while, and there's a huge journey that has happened. So before we start, again, welcome to the show, t- telling us a little bit about yourself, so your background and uh, and a little bit a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be uh, with you. And I'm looking forward to this discussion just as much as it sounds like you are. So I I am from the American South. I'm from Southern Mississippi, actually. Um, was born and raised there, about an hour from the, the Gulf Coast, and grew up around music. Grew up um, in the church. Grew up with a very kind of traditional Southern U.S. Uh, upbringing. Yeah, I, my journey started there, and then at 21, I left and have gone other places. When did your personal uh, journey in music start? I was uh, surrounded by a lot of a lot of that music, just kind of peripherally. Um, but I would say my father was a huge influence musically on me. He had a pretty strong record collection. Um, and eight-track collection, <laughs> you can imagine, and um, and so he exposed me probably to the the largest scope of music, you know, in terms of different stylings and classics, and um, a lot of it he liked. He did like country music, so some of it was that was there. So my first sort of entryway into music was just a desire to learn the piano so i took traditional piano lessons starting around i guess maybe nine years old um i had you know the the very conventional western classical type of training and somewhere in my high school years maybe around 15 uh i i switched teachers to um um a professor in a local college who really just shaped my classical repertoire. She, she saw some gaps in some of my education musically. She filled it in, showed me how to play certain things that I'd never done before, exposed me to a lot of classical music, um, did competitions, played in that kind of circuit where you would be evaluated. Uh, I loved classical music, but I didn't feel like I could execute it as good as so-and-so or so-and-so or 50 so-and-sos. So it was always something like lacking inside of me where I felt like I was uh, not very good. But I did stick with it. Um, part of my story is that my, my mother told me at a very young age, if you stay with one thing and you really like throw yourself into it and you don't, you know, separate into like 10 different uh, hobbies or something like that, but really focus, then it'll pay your college. Um, and, and she was right. So I did that. I really focused on piano wholeheartedly. I practiced um, a lot. And then when it came time to go to university, 
I got a scholarship to go there and play and, and be a piano performance major, for sure. So, did you pursue music at the university as well? Oh, yes. Um, it was really all I knew to how to do <laughs> at that point <laughs> of time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I struggled for sure with that same feeling of like, well, there's 50 other people better than me. <clears throat> and so perhaps my position here isn't warranted, but I continued on and continued forward. I struggle with a bit of imposter syndrome. I don't know if you've moved that uh, terminology, but it's something that um, I've battled throughout throughout my life, just thinking that, you know, everything that my accomplishments were really a fluke instead of my own natural talent or whatever I've done. So, uh, but yeah, I did. I, I pursued music. I studied guitar and voice as well. Although, please don't ask me to play the guitar. <laughs> It'd be terrible. Okay. Um, and focused on classical music. Again, still in, in my journey, it was still very limited to uh, church music, classical music, but I was not yet exploring anything else with any sort of, you know, uh, drive or passion. I was just really focused on the traditional, memorize the music, play it the best that I can. I think one of the takeaways in that season um, in performing for people, that even though I don't think I can execute technically those classical pieces as well as a lot of people, one of the things that stood out, at least among my, my professors and people who were guiding me was, you know, hmm, you're expressing this in a really unusual or interesting way. You're really making us feel this music, you know? So that was a comment that I would get often that, um, I guess if you had to say it was my classical niche, that was what it was. It was the ability to, you know, play a Chopin nocturne and move somebody, um, not by my technical prowess all over the piano, but just by the emotional component and exploring that. Okay, interesting. So, so when did the move to New York happen and what triggered that? I moved to New York. There was a job opportunity to come and of course I always wanted to, as I said, sort of see over the fence, so to speak, of what else was out there. You know, I grew up knowing this one, I grew up in a small town and I knew this one region, beautiful region, wonderful region, but I was very curious what's on the other side of the fence? What's out there in the world, you know? And I, I have always had a passion for travel and uh, different different ways of living and seeing different things, different cultures and how, you know, how do people live? So it was very appealing to me and a job opportunity became available and took it and moved. Yeah, but when you talk about looking over the fence, you just didn't look over the fence, you looked across many fences and <laughs> and we'll, we'll touch upon that so what was new york like for you i mean you know having been raised in the in a small town as you say and you know in the southern uh, part of the country so what was new york like for you i mean what changed what changed within you once you came to new york yeah of course uh, yeah very different from from anything i had known before we had real uh, four seasons, not just hot and less hot. New Yorker is a, a more metropolitan state of mind, so you know you're fast-paced. And you know if someone tries to strike a conversation with you and you don't know them, 
you're immediately like skeptical. Why is this person trying to have a conversation yeah. with me, a stranger? Um, you know, so there's a different feel, different vibe in terms of the pace of life. Uh, but I loved it. So when you came to New York, did the genre of music also change? For example, you know, you've always been surrounded by classical music and by church music. Uh, did that change at all in New York? Were you exposed and did you have an opportunity to sort of, you know, do gigs with, uh, you know, small clubs and uh, and stuff like that? And how did that impact the music influence? Now that's a good question. Um, I'll tell you something interesting that I discovered um, that was surprising for me is that actually, uh, especially in upstate New York, a lot of people really like country music. <laughs> I was very surprised to find that out. And when people would find out that I, I was from the South, they immediately, you know, think that I knew all of these country artists, which I don't. Um, but in terms of like difference in, in music, um, yeah, and I've played in like small scale uh, clubs, cafes, venues like that for sure, both in the South and up here. But um, more exposure to like uh, bigger concerts that people, and artists who would come through that maybe from say my, my hometown that was not happening. So it was interesting to see a, a, a wider variety of artists and musicians come through or opportunities to hear you know the ballet go see the ballet or yeah. do whatever not that i grew up in the sticks where you know you've never had any of those things but comparatively uh you know you just have a lot more entertainment and arts and creative arts opportunities um in a place around here where you have things kind of rotating a lot a lot more frequently you have to travel a little bit to see something like that from where I grew up. I was still heavily involved in classical music and still trying to make that work. Yeah. I considered uh, going back and getting my master's degree. Um, it just wasn't the right timing, but I will tell you a very pivotal thing that happened musically in New York. And this was in 2000, I want to say three. Um, I wrote my first song. Um, it was a pivotal moment. So something had happened in my personal life that was difficult, like a, a painful thing, okay, a loss and a, and a struggle that I was personally going through. And for the first time ever, I sat at my piano in Poughkeepsie, New York, and I started to pour out whatever was kind of go brewing inside of me, that emotional, like just, ooh, everything. And I started playing, I started writing lyrics, I was feverishly writing this stuff down. My kids, I think I had one or two kids at the time. You know, I remember them being like asleep and it being very late and no one is up and no one's around and I'm just playing and writing this music and thinking, this is great that I can do this. I wasn't thinking the music was great, but I was thinking this is this is a new part of my musical experience that I've never explored before. Um, almost like musical journaling. You know, I'm just writing all these ideas, sentences, thoughts. Um, maybe it was a prayer, I don't know. It was, there's a lot of different things. Now that first song um, was absolutely horrible <laughs> in terms of the musical quality, it was not good. Um, but I've heard a lot of artists say that their first material, <clears throat> that that's part of the process. You know, you yeah. start out, put it out there, and it's probably complete, you know, garbage, but you 
you, you don't care because it's your first it's your first uh, composition and you just continue forward. That's how it was for me. I remember I called a few friends that I was close to and I wanted to like sing this song and play this song for them. You know, it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. So I had these like private home sessions where I called in a few friends and said, hey, pull up a chair next to the piano and listen to me sing this song. And um, you know, what was remarkable is that they came. <laughs> was there food involved? <laughs> probably, and probably, yeah. probably some, some uh, other refreshments <laughs> to okay. woo them into my home to sit there and listen you gotta to do what you gotta do yeah right. listen to this sad whiny song um it was it was very angsty you know sad whiny uh just a very first person you know rendering <laughs> with very basic chord structure in the minor key but hey it was my first time of sharing this part of me and, and it was something that like lit a flame yeah. You know, that this, this is something that really, and it was it was both things. It was not just creating the song, it was sharing it with someone else. Because I really believe that music um, is intrinsically communicative. So whether it's you at the, your instrument by yourself and God, or however you term that, the universe, but you're communicating something, you're putting something out there. If another person happens to be in the same space, or a lot of people, if it's an audience, you're communicating with them, to right. them. Um, so that element was something really, uh, really special and very pivotal okay. in, in my process of, of creation, so. What was the name of the piece, if I may ask? It was a question. Um, thinking, I know it started with the word how, um, but it was oh, okay. probably, you know, like, how can I something? I don't know. It was it was very uh, dark, whiny song <laughs> from 2003. There was one other moment that I can think of that really stuck out in my mind as um, showing me that I was meant to be on some sort of performing level. It was my last year in uh, university, and I was playing. I was playing for this, not really a competition, but but a, a performance for people who had who sort of like make it past all these different levels of playing, and they choose three people out of the collegiate um, group that had you know to do that. I, was, I, I went and I just remember I was one of the three and there was a very full hall of um, professors and local people and also other other collegiate musicians who were you know music majors. So these are like my colleagues you know in my cohort um, and right before going on stage to play <clears throat> and this was probably the biggest at that point in time uh, amount of people that I've played for and I was what 18 or 19 years old and I do remember having that adrenaline moment and breathing like a you know in out in out in out and then right before just stepping out and the lights are down and the light is on the piano and just thinking about the fact that I'm about to connect with all these people that was really 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 yeah. huge and, and not scary. And I think that's how I knew, I had the adrenaline, but I think that's how I knew, well, I'm not running off the stage. 
And I'm really liking this actually. I'm really liking how everyone's stopped and listening, you know, uh, to what I'm playing, and I can render something that could be valuable to them to listen to. So that was a that was a huge one too. So, Melanie, you know, uh, when I first got to know of you, uh, what actually intrigued me was not just the musical element of your life, but a lot more. Did the kids walk around saying, "My mommy's a rock star"? Uh, <laughs> How do they take to your music and and, and 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 your compositions? I love this question because <clears throat> it's a very real question with real answers. I my kids have grown up being exposed to my piano playing, whether that was classical or other realms, as we'll talk about in, in the next little bit. But when they were babies, if I had rehearsals with with bands or like an orchestra or whatever it was, I mean, there are many times, many times that I had a little baby, you know, with a, a wrap, uh, you know, hooked on to me, either on the backside, like a little backpack, little baby, you know, sitting there and would fall asleep while I was either practicing at the piano or in a rehearsal. Um, so these things were very normative for yeah. my kids to grow up hearing mom practice a lot, but also, you know, seeing me um, perform, seeing me on the stage, whatever I was doing. I mean, that that was something that um, they grew up knowing. And wow. I think, <laughs> I think my youngest daughter, she's ten, um, also into music, but she's she's super cute. She told me um, a couple days back, maybe a week ago, she was like. You know, mom, I told my, my class at school, I showed them your YouTube, blah, 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 you know, and I showed them this and I made them, we had quiet time, rest time, and I told them to play your this song. <laughs> so I think at least my youngest one is very, you know, very aware of that and very proud of that. All my children are supportive of my oh, wow. whole journey, which is like, I couldn't ask for more in terms of you know, having the support of my five children. Uh, so I have um, a daughter who's who's 20. I have a son who's 19. He's more of a sports guy. Okay. But he is such a supporter of my music. Uh, recently, I sent him um, I sent him something privately that I had done, and he he gave me this kind of feedback that for me it's bigger than if I had played it in front of like 25,000 people. You know. Yeah for my son to say, mom, I, you gave me some tears, like you brought me to tears. Like that kind of reaction to my own created music from my yeah. own son that was created, like it's just, it's too much for me. And that is the greatest reward that I think I could ever get for, for music. But I have a son, 19. Um, I have a son who is almost 16. He plays the guitar and drums. Uh, and I have a son who's 13. 14 and he also is a very he has a very curated playlist so he's I've done right with my kids to try to expose them to a wide yeah. variety so I feel good about that um, though he doesn't play anything and then my youngest is a daughter Melanie the few times that I've had the pleasure to talk to you you know on our whatsapp calls I've noticed one thing about you is how grateful you are for literally everything that you talk about. So, and this, I'm gonna connect this point with something else that you said, you've always been the one who's always wanted to look you know, above the fence to what's there. I think you took it a bit too far when you decided 
to move out of the US and you moved to India of all places. So tell us a little bit about that and what triggered that move and, and, and what was that like? Well, to speak about gratitude first, um, it was beautiful what you said. And if that is the impression that I give to people, then I feel very happy inside that that's something that resonates because wow. I do try to teach my children. We even have a gratitude journal where we write down things from time to time, like just little things like what could we be grateful for? Because I... I think it's really easy to get into a rut of never stopping to think of those things. And life is hard. It's really hard. It's 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 not easy. And so to like stop and look and say, this tiny thing today I'm grateful for, I just feel like it gives a better experience at life, you know, where yeah. we're going through struggles or not. But um, but yeah, India, ooh. So if the transition from the South to New York was huge then the transition you know from the US to India was massive um, in a great way <laughs> in a great way I've said many times and I still maintain this that coming to India felt like coming home and I don't know how to explain that other than the things that I encountered the people the colors the food the aromas the music the culture, the way of life, for me, it was like a breath of fresh air. To go from a very American culture where everything's scheduled and timed and, you know, uh, very time-centric, to India where everything, you might wake up every single day in a week and never have your day go exactly how you thought, and it's okay. Someone might come by for chai that you didn't expect, and no one is upset about this. Everyone's just excited, you know, to have a visitor and to meet together. There doesn't have to be this sort of, I really want to visit with you. Um, when can we get together? And then, like two months later, is the planned time. So I really, I really loved that aspect, among many things. We moved to India. Well, we sold all of our it's everything except for my piano we sold cars we sold a house we sold everything furniture you name it um, except for my piano and our uh, home library the books and we moved to India in 2016 the first time I had gone to South Asia was a trip to Nepal uh, it was in 2013, maybe 2012, somewhere around in there. That got my first taste, but had always thought of living, um, like you said, I mean, I looked over the fence and I looked way over the fence and, uh, you know, it just appealed to me. Uh, that's all I can say about it. It just appealed to me. Something was there. It was like so different and I wanted my kids to have a different kind of experience too exposure to the world, a different worldview where they had a broader scope for what's happening in the world. I, I was homeschooling my children, so it was important to me. I mean, if you're the person who's crafting the education plan of your kids, you think about these things and you think about, like, I don't want to do them wrong. You know, I want to give them as much exposure to the world as possible. So what better way than to move, <laughs> to pick up and move across the world and um, 
So I could speak for days about India and what those first moments were like. Or, um, we didn't move to a, a big city. We moved to a small village area where just your basic things to come by, it was not easy. But it made you have that deeper appreciation too. Made you have a really deep appreciation for a lot of things, for beauty, the beauty that we're, we're surrounded by. So yeah, um, a complete, complete contrast to uh, the US, for sure, in a great way. So why India first? You could have moved to any part yeah. But my husband at the time had gone to India a few times when he was younger. And when he would talk about it, you know, it would be something that would have piqued my interest. I would like to okay. see this too. I would like to see what you're doing over there too. I'd like to go, you know, whatever. We had friends in, that were working in this school, like a village school, a Christian school there, in northern India, um, very near in Uttarakhand, very near Uttarakhand. So if you know uh, Dehradun, about five hours north of there, a journey you know, through the mountains, the, the most stunning, gorgeous journey through the mountains ever. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and that school was located in um, this little town right outside of Uttarkashi. And we had kind of met with these friends that were there and met with the school uh, facilitator, owner person and talked with him about coming, maybe teaching music, maybe, you know, uh, teaching English or doing different things, you know, to help out with the school. And so that's kind of how it started. It started like that. And it just, it was like a dream, I guess you could say more than anything, just to be able to give up the American dream, to be able to like, you know, put that kind of aside for, for a time. I, I moved there with an idea to be there forever. Uh, it didn't happen that way, because life is unpredictable, but my first inclination was I want to go here, and I, I really, I really fell in love with them. I really wanted to, to be there, so. So, was the move to India influenced by a church move, or was it was it a spiritual thing, or was it just the 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 need to go and move out of this comfortable life in the West in America, and and, and find a deeper meaning? I mean, what triggered the well, move? As I, I share with you, I grew up in the church um, with a Judeo-Christian sort of religious spiritual belief system okay, and philosophy, which is simply stated at the core of a Judeo-Christian belief is the idea of you know, Jesus helping other people or this, this um, philosophy of true love coming from God. And then that kind of dictates how you live your life, that you are a good person, you don't lie or steal from people, that you try to help other people. At the core of the Christian message, you, know, you are trying to help other people who maybe um, have less than you've been given in some sort of way. Now this is tricky because I think, I think sometimes we think we're helping and it's really all about us. Yeah. yeah it's no, all about correct. us. Correct. In a very self-centered way, like I'm going to come in and be the white savior. 
Yeah. No. And this is something that um, I always rejected that notion and very sensitive to that, particularly in India. I'm sensitive to that, you know, wherever I go, um, being a white person, I mean, especially especially now that we talk about these things so openly, it's good. I tell my kids, you know, we have to be careful that we don't think just because of our uh, ignorance to a certain culture that we have it all right. Correct. We don't always have it right. And so this takes wisdom. It takes a lot of thinking through things. How do you help someone? First of all, do they need help? <laughs> do yeah. they want help? Are you the best person to help them? You know, it could go on and on. So it was all of those things. It was a spiritual notion inside of me to search for something deeper and meaningful with my life and purpose. It was um, on a very surface level exciting because I like to travel, I like to see the world, I like culture, and this was very appealing. And it was very uh, intrinsically tied to that, you know, philosophical belief of coming and helping other people however that I could or if that was something that could be done, you know, and unpacking that. So, yeah. So, if at all, how do you think India helped you? I don't know whether India gave you something back, but I definitely know that it helped you in your musical journey. So, what was your first exposure to Indian music? Because it's very different. It's, I mean, the, the scales and everything of India, the music is very different to what I assume you were, you know, exposed to in the West. So tell us a little bit about that. I would love to, and this is actually really closely tied to your, your previous question about what did India give back. I mean, I, I operate on a belief that music in and of itself is uh, spiritual and very powerful. And, and music is always present. And so my first exposure to, um, to Indian music for sure was the folk music and the, the mountain music. It was just what, whatever was going on in that little area where we were living, which was right by the river. Um, and so uh, I would hear, like, for example, um, you know, people gathering, like, just like that, old, young, whoever, at the person, whoever was carrying the door, whatever drum they were playing. Yeah. And then just boom, you know, people are there. Um, I definitely heard a lot of the singing. Now where I was, we didn't really hear much of the harmonium going on. Um, maybe a few occasions that came out, but um, I think someone at the school where I was had, there was a, there was a Western guitar, uh, you know, and I remember clearly one time this guy, he was a local person playing the guitar and strumming it. He never played any chords. He never put in a hand shape for the chord. It was great. He played in a completely like what I would term, you know, mountain Garwali style rhythmically. It was probably in seven or something like that with a very distinct beat. And I can hear it in my ear even right now. It's very different from anything I heard like further south. But this northern Indian uh, kind of folk music, he would play the guitar almost like a percussion instrument. And people start singing. Um, 
so that was my first experience just with the living, breathing music that was going on as part of the routine of life. I think these things are tied together, the natural beauty of India, but also just the ability to ponder life. When you see that beauty, you kind of step back and you, it's, you look at the stars and you, you ponder things like, well, why was I created? Why am I here? What am, what am I? What's my purpose? What am I looking for? And you see this story in a lot of different religious texts. You see it in a lot of literature, a lot of writing, you know, looking at the stars and that leading you to ponder the deeper questions of life. And I for sure um, had many moments. So, so for how long did you live in India before you moved back to America? Uh, about three years. About three years. Uh, all of that time in the same place, I assume? Yeah, home base was there. Um, home base was there once I began uh, doing music and traveling and stuff. You know, I traveled in a lot of different places in India. That was always home. Okay. So while you're in India then, you come across, you know, this really strange gentleman called Susmit Sen, who you've been collaborating a lot with for the past few years. You said it, not me. I said it. <laughs> I said it, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so how did that happen? So, uh, uh, you know, as we all know, Swiss Mercedes is very highly acclaimed, you know, guitarist par excellence, the founder of India's most amazing fusion band called Indian Ocean. So how did that happen, by the way? How, how did you guys meet up and what was that like? So. Maybe the, the, within the first year that we were there, uh, and we had a little bit of a visa trouble. I can't remember all the details of it. We were going to have to go back to the U.S. and sort something out. It was going to cost, you know, $80 billion. <laughs> it felt like we tried with, with five kids trying to all go back and fix this visa problem. And I had a friend uh, who was in Dune working at the Dune uh, guitar company. And... He had mentioned to me, you know, maybe, I think I maybe asked him, do you know anybody in the music realm that can kind of help me out with this situation? Is there anybody that you that you know of? Has he been um, working for that guitar, guitar company for a while? And he just kind of casually said, um, this is an Australian friend, he just kind of casually said, oh yeah, you know, got this friend, blah, blah, blah. He's, um, he's in uh, Delhi, he's a guitarist, he's great and I'll connect you on um, WhatsApp or Facebook or however it was. I didn't really think much about it um, because he didn't tell me much about it at the time. He must have been really having a busy day. <laughs> and so he linked us in a group message and said, you know, uh, Melanie, this is Sushmit Sin. He's a fabulous guitarist who's kind of stationed out of Delhi. And Sushmit, this is Melanie. She's a fabulous pianist. She's up in the mountains. And uh, here you go, I'm out. <laughs> and uh, so we started kind of a basic conversation. And I said, you know, I have this visa problem. Just wondering if I could talk to you and Sushmit in his Sushmit way. So I can't help you with that at all. <laughs> I can't help you with anything that regards the government. Um, you know, it's not my, my forte. Yeah. But, so, you know, he was like, but you're a pianist. Mm -hmm. 
And then I was like, oh, but you're a guitarist. And then we sort of had this, you know, comparison of what we were doing, what is our style. And after an exchange, a few, a few um, messages of exchange and a phone, couple of phone conversations, and he began to tell me very humbly, I must add, and, and, and not forthright at all. I think he was probably amused. You know, here's this white woman who really doesn't know who I am from anybody, um, which is embarrassing for me now. But, you know, and I'm just gonna see, I'm just gonna ride this out and see when's the moment, you know, when she clicks on YouTube and discovers that um, I'm the founder of this band that has <laughs> however many million views on whatever of their catalog songs. You yeah. know? It did happen, that happened like that. So we had a phone conversation or two and and he, he kind of said very, Slyly, you could, you could search me up on YouTube. You want to hear how I play or whatever? I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Hang up the phone. And I remember my friend was at the house, <laughs> and I type in, you know, his name, and I probably was just like an audible squeal, like, oh my, oh my goodness, you know, call my friend in here. Look, hold on, look at this. And then I had another friend who was Indian, who. Um, <laughs> He took me through the market one day, or riding his bike through the market, going in, and I kind of casually dropped Sushant's name and just said, you know, I've been talking with this guy. You ever heard this band, Indian Ocean? And this guy, he's a young guy, um, good friend of mine. Hello, Elise, if you're listening. And he, he said, he was like this. He was like, what? Um, are you kidding? Like, you have to call him right now. You have to call him right back. <laughs> you have to go there. You have to play with him. That's a huge band. So he was aware. And that kind of started me backtracking with Schmidt and apologizing <laughs> for my huge gap and not knowing who exactly he was. Um, we quickly decided that we needed to jam. Uh, a big, a big part of that story is he asked me for recordings, and I had a few recordings that I, I wasn't really happy with. That didn't really display what I thought was my core style. And I did have this one piece that I'd sat on for years because um, the last time I had shared it with anyone, I got a kind of scathing review from a, from a colleague who said, this is really boring and I don't like this and this is what you need to do. And I just felt kind of internally damaged a little bit by that review. So I, I hadn't shared it with anybody in a few years, but I, I thought, okay, this piece kind of sounds, if I had anything close to Indian sound in my piano, this piece might be it. So let me send it over. And Sushmit uh, loved it. And he gave me the kind of feedback that was, I don't know, it's like it came full circle. It was very healing. And uh, we met for the first time at Sushmit's parents' house. I was with my oldest daughter. He brought his guitar, his amps, everything. It was, the plan was that we were on our way to fly back to the U.S. for some time. Um, but we really, you know, we were coming through Delhi, so it was like, let's meet, let's see. But I didn't have a keyboard, I didn't have a piano. There was no way to jam yet. <laughs> and he began to play um, a song called Iceberg Project, and he played City Lights. Yeah. And this blew me away. It, it was like something I'd never heard before. <clears throat> we were sitting there and you know recording on my phone like, whatever I'm hearing right now is something else. It's something other. And I have to like record this so I don't forget yeah. whatever this was that he was playing. 
I went back to the U.S. for some time, maybe eight or nine weeks. And upon my return, the very day that we returned into Delhi, I bought a, a digital piano at his shop in, in Delhi and had it delivered to his house later that evening. Met with him and we jammed the first time. <laughs> so, you know, what's... I've seen a couple of videos like City Lights and the Asphalt Project, for example, on which the two of you have been jamming you know, with some other musicians. But what it gets to me about this is what I, what I can't figure out is here you are, a trained classical pianist who relies on a score, you know, sheets of score in, in front of you uh, to play. Uh, and we've got somebody else uh, and as I said, I mean, your, your genre was classical and it was somebody else who I can't believe actually has a genre and he's, he doesn't understand his music score at all. I think, you know, what, 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 what gets to me about him is that he has about seven different genres, seven different rhythms, seven different melodies. And any other musician would say that's an album. He gets about seven of those and he says, that's a song. Okay. And he expects <laughs> his, no, he expects his musicians, all of them to play with him without any musical score. What was that transition like for you and how did you embrace that? I felt like my brain was, was constantly like on and trying so hard to make this work. He had given me uh, a list of, of Indian classical guitar players, well-known to listen to. If you want to know my style, you know, listen to these guys. I tried it in the U.S. I try. I, I even tried to interpret a few of his pieces. Iceberg Project was one of them. I sent over recordings, you know. And Sushmita is not bashful, you know. About I think that's what really makes him good, or uh, more than good, is that he's very, um, like you said. I mean, the musician, musicians that play with him are are heavily curated, and and he will push them. So that was something that I experienced, and it was uncomfortable. Um, for me, as a grown person who's had this career in both playing classical music and teaching classical music and reading the score, um, and then trying to make it work with someone who didn't who didn't speak that language of music, he spoke a different yeah. one. So, and it was equally frustrating for him. I later found out too. So we began <coughs> just sort of bumping up against each other with everything. You know, we would play in the same register. I wouldn't know what key we're in. I don't know what's the meter. He's down tuned. We, we are trying to figure out, you know, all these little things to make the music work. And um, he even told me at one point after the first jam session, which I could have killed him, the first jam session, he invited people over to, the, to his house to be present for this moment. <laughs> so I am jet lagged. I have a brand new digital piano. I'm, I'm believing so much in working with this man. I, I, you know, the first time he ever plucked the note, I, I knew, like, I'm going to do music with this. This is the kind of music that I would love to do. So I believed in it enough to purchase a, a big, make that kind of purchase. That's a big purchase, and that's a big step. But I was so tired, and here are these people I've never met before, who are just standing by, waiting, thinking this magical thing would, you know, emerge between the two of us. And Mr. Schmidt told me later, <laughs> he was like, you know, that first time I wasn't so sure that it was going to work. <laughs> and I said, you know what, me either. Um, but we met the very next day. And from that point forward, 
um, there were these little pockets of like real gold. Like there were many times where we had rehearsals uh, in the very beginning. Oh, and he he oh he he worked me hard on figuring out. You know, I would do it to like what I thought was an okay level. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think you can do this better. Let's do it again. And we spent hours. We spent hours while people were cooking dinner, we were playing. We're, when, when dinner's finished, we would go back. We'd play again. Sometimes until 2, 3, 4 in the morning, trying to hammer out how to make this work. And um, I guess he sensed that we both did. We just, like I told you, little pockets of moments where we were like, Whoa. This could sound really good if we keep pressing on. And but another thing that happened then with that was you uh, composed a piece of music called Yatra. I also was fortunate enough to to see it on on YouTube, and you told me that the video was just you with your phone filming that little town where you lived in. So how did Yatra come about? And, 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 and what led to it? Well, as you know, Yatra is uh, a Hindi word for, for journey or like pilgrimage. Yeah. And where, where I lived in those mountains was right on the main path that every summer people would take Yatra you know, and, and, and go up to uh, Gungo Tree. So I was, you know, aware of this thing going on, but how it how it came to be in terms of a, a manifestation of my own music. Uh, I, I recently completed some graduate work at Columbia University in uh, New York City. And one of the seminars I was in, it was all about kind of coming to your primary instrument in a, in a, med a meditative way, getting reacquainted with your instrument, sitting with it, the, the process for this project was sit at the piano, see what comes out of you, you know, and, and create some sort of multimedia expression that could be shared, that would culminate all of the things. You know. And it came for me very organically. It wasn't like I set out to go, okay, I'm gonna sit at the piano and I'm gonna, I'm gonna create this. Um, I started to record I had the wherewithal to record, I think possibly maybe the whole thing, which the video does not show this, but it was about 20 minutes. So I was sort of getting into that moment. Um, and you can hear a clear expression of the Indian influence in my playing. Yeah. You can hear, you can hear a lot of different things in terms of the, um, the beat, the scale, you can feel the the ability that, like I said, to get away from rhythm music, to just flow, and to let the piano, you know, to let it come out of me however it would. So Yatra is a journey, and it, it's just a music video, you know, capsule of my time and my journey that, that started in 2016. <laughs> first things first, and I know you're back in New York, so What's what's going on with Melanie at the moment in terms of work? Any aspirations or what are you currently working on? The aspirations are 100% focused on getting back to a place of performance. 
performing with Sushmit and the other musicians that I worked with in India, getting that music to a forefront, to, to the ears that need to hear it. Yeah. To release a couple of new tracks that are recorded and mastered and ready to go. They just haven't, you know, everything just sort of, it's like in life you have these moments where you just hit pause and it feels like, um, those two things of me unexpectedly having to leave India and then the pandemic was like a big pause. But now we're pushing play. Uh, I am a teaching artist, so I have a private studio of um, piano students from all over, all over the world. Actually, I have a student in Oman, which is lovely. And I hope to grow that international reach with my, with my home studio. You know, so what would you say one is to musicians, aspiring musicians, aspiring pianists, but most importantly, what would you say to not just women, but to people who want to look beyond their, beyond the horizon so that, that, that they see and want to pursue an interest in something so far out? In life, we have, as I mentioned before, we have these chances of meeting really interesting people and opportunities that come to us. How and why that happens, I haven't figured out exactly. A lot of people have, you know, have written volumes of literature and, and writing trying to explain how life works out. Um, for me, I've given up trying to figure it out. <laughs> I've just accepted that there are these sort of signs, you know, that I pursue and follow and try to take steps to do those things. I would say, and I say this to my children, um, and I, I'm a mother, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of these things for them. I want them to not be inhibited by their own mind as to what they can do or cannot do. And I think that's our greatest uh, inhibitor. I know it has been for me in life, the times that I haven't moved and done something, the times that I have not acted, is because my own mind convinced me that I couldn't do the thing. Yeah. When I try something, um, nine times out of 10, it puts something into motion. I like to think of it like, um, and don't let your mind inhibit you doing something like other people may think is completely crazy, like completely nuts. And, and believe me, I've faced that. I think as humans, we feel defensive when someone is doing something that we didn't do. Yeah. So we feel defensive, like Correct. whatever, you know, somebody's criticizing what I've done with my life because they're doing something different. I think it's a much more higher level thinking and more mature place to to be free to do your thing and to support someone doing a completely opposite thing. Do you think everybody creates their own journey or is, is, is a journey waiting for everyone? I think, I think I'm gonna give you a frustrating answer, but I think that you're the type of person that can totally sit with it. I think it's both and. Yeah. I think it's both and, it's not either or. I think, I think that there is a journey for everyone, for sure. I think everyone has a story um, that their particular circumstances and experiences, upbringing, whatever, influences. Yeah. Uh, but I also think, again, that it takes an active participant to take those certain steps and see what will happen more. <laughs> Melanie, it's been incredible talking to you. Thank you for so much for doing this. And just to wrap up, I just got to say that, you know, uh, um, I, 
the reason behind the podcast is to talk to ordinary people with ordinary stories who inspire the unknown at, at such a high level. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, listening to you, there's a woman, there's a mother, there's a musician, there's gratitude and there's bravery to actually venture into the unknown and to embrace something that life's, you know, th- thrown your way. And I think the key message is throw the ball. To everyone listening, I think the message is throw the ball. You know, whether it's music, piano, venturing, spiritual, venturing into the unknown, whatever it may be, and uh, and always striving to do the best at whatever you do and believing in what you ever want to do and, and taking the plunge. So thank you so much. Uh, it's been absolutely brilliant. I know, I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, but it's been worth it. So thanks a lot. And I hope... Wish you all the best, and I think the world is going to be very fortunate to hear more and more of the music coming out from 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 you and just made together in your collaborations and the other musicians that you're working with, for sure. Thank you um, so much for the opportunity just to share about um, this remarkable journey. I do feel like it's something not normal. <laughs> um, what is normal, right? But it's definitely something off the conventional path. And I do love to talk about it because I just, I hope that there would be someone who would listen and say, you know, I've always wanted to write that book or I've always wanted to move somewhere and do this thing. And I I do hope, because I am just an ordinary person. I mean, the bulk of who I am is um, just a a regular person who is a mother, you know, and... uh, just a woman trying to make my way in the world and I would love it if someone you know heard this and took hold of that idea to to do the thing well you have a great rest of the day and can't wait yeah. to can't wait to hear more of your of your creation so that was Melanie thank you very much for being on my podcast and take care <laughs>